Brian McClanahan Show, episode 216. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you want to support the Brian McClanahan Show, go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep this podcast going. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. And those that do enroll get the best deals on forthcoming courses. You're going to want to do that. I've got a new class coming out within the next couple of weeks. In fact, the pre-order date is going to be the 18th. So if you enroll, you're going to get the deals. You can buy it for the lowest price possible. I also have five classes right now available for purchase. So that's a great way to support the the uh, Brian McClanahan Show podcast. Uh, but I have a course on the war, a course on Constitution, a course on uh, Alexander Hamilton, one on secession, and one on the Declaration of Independence. So a lot of great stuff. And I've got a new class coming out, Reconstruction and Recreation. Fantastic class. You're going to want it. Uh, also... You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. It's a great website, over 20 classes. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. So you got Tom Woods, Kevin Goodson, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, myself, Bob Murphy, a lot of great people out there. So you're going to want to get on that class, onto that, uh, that website too and get those classes. Over 20, philosophy, economics, history, uh, things that I don't teach at McClanahan Academy. I've got over there. Um, so it's a it's a great bang for your buck website, and of course you can always support the show by going to RedBubble.com. You can get all your Brian McClanahan show gear there. So go ahead and get that. Just RedBubble.com. Do a search for my name, B R I O N McClanahan, and you can find all my uh, all my gear, cups, T-shirts, uh, skins for your electronic devices, wall plates, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. Wall clocks, I mean, cool stuff now uh, with my logo on it. So go on out there and get that stuff. All right. Uh, this is also a listener-generated episode, and it has to do with uh, libertarianism.org. They're running a new series, and I actually applaud them for this. Um, it is a new series. It's called uh, Everything Wrong with the Presidents. So fantastic. I mean, let's talk about the presidents. I mean, gosh, I, one of my best-selling books is Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. So I'm all on board with this. And what are we going to do? Um, the this is uh, the, libertarianism.org tends to be a little bit more left libertarian uh, than I like. Um, and when I say that, and, and I'm going to say this with because the, the person I'm going to criticize here, I think he's a good guy. Uh, it's just that I don't necessarily agree with him on some of his positions. So I'm going to take some of those things apart. But not just that. Um, when I wrote Nine Presidents, the point of that particular book was to evaluate the presidents and how they uh, adhered to their oath of office, which was uh, to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And so that was the litmus test. That's what we. That's what I did there. And of course, the libertarian purists. Who I, uh, this is what these people often often are. Uh, and the person I'm talking about is Anthony Comegna. Um, these people tend to say, well, I mean, every president is bad. And, and I can understand that. I mean, look, you're talking about abuse of power at times. Every president's done bad things from George Washington to Donald Trump. There's no doubt about that. So it's it's okay to criticize them. And I think that's, an, that's a healthy exercise to do it. Uh, a presidency 
uh, can be problematic. We know that the founding generation was very concerned about the effect the presidency would have on American government. I mean, this is one of the, the when the presidency was proposed in Philadelphia, there was a stunned silence because, of course, the founding generation just fought a war to free themselves from an empire that had a king, and they didn't want another one. And so they would look, of course, at the current executive and say, my gosh, it's exactly what we have in America. And so I think that looking at these, at these presidents without rose-colored glasses is a very good thing to do. The problem that I have with the one piece I'm going to talk about is that it's, it's got some mistakes in it, number one. And number two, it is too saturated with presentism uh, and an ism, right? An ideology that's driving the critique. And I get it because Anthony Comegna has written his dissertation on the Loco Focos. Um, he's interested in the, uh, in the ideas of liberty at the time. And, and if it doesn't fit with that, then he's not going to be on board with what people are doing. But again, these are, these are modern conceptions of the idea. Now, he would say, well, no, they're not, because there were people at the time that thought like this. And there were some. This is true. But uh, I don't think you can be as critical of these individuals, particularly in the 19th century in the antebellum period. And Comegna has actually come on and said, look, I don't agree. I don't like anybody in this period of time. Uh, he actually said this in a, in a recent podcast. I don't like anybody uh, except for the rabble-rousers like the Locofocos and maybe the, the uh, black soldiers. Well, this is a... And Andy says the individuals in the North who fought against the expansion of federal power during the war... And I agree. Look, the Copperheads in the North were, were good people uh, interested in constitutional government. But see, that's the key, because a lot of these Copperheads that he's so interested in saying, hey, these people are fighting against big government, a lot of them had racial positions that I'm sure Anthony Comegna would not have agreed with. So you have to pick your poison, right? Uh, just because these people had some views on things that didn't necessarily fit with today with our current sensibilities, uh, you can't just disregard them. And of course, one of the individuals I'm going to talk about is John Tyler. This was sent to me because, of course, John Tyler is a person that I say was the greatest president in American history. Now, was he faultless? No. In fact, I think Tyler did have some problems at times. One of them was that he was sending confusing messages to the Whigs. I mean, I think that Tyler at one point was more agreeable to the Bank of the United States than uh, then he let on. And in fact, when he's vetoing the legislation, he's actually working behind the scenes and he has his own proposal out there, which would have established a central banking system, right? So Tyler is not uh, infallible. The, the man had issues when it came to power. But when you look at the oath of office, when you look at his oath of office, which is how we should, how we should uh, uh, analyze these presidents, there's nobody better in American history and adhering to his oath of office than John Tyler. And so uh, I'm going to talk about this piece, which is everything wrong with the John Tyler, or the Tyler administration. It was published on March 4th, so not long ago, a little over a week ago. And he begins, I'm going to read the beginning of this particular piece, and I'm going to talk about a couple of things that are wrong from the beginning. Comegna begins, John Tyler is perhaps an unlikely and even idiosyncratic choice for worst president ever. But I will argue that he, more than anyone else, killed the American tradition of revolutionary republicanism and inaugurated a generation of slaveholder imperialism. Now, from the beginning, this is entirely wrong. Entirely wrong. Revolutionary republicanism? First of all, 
Um, I think Kamegna, I mean, he just finished his PhD in 2016. And if you've gone through, anybody who's in graduate school or even in the last 20 years has gone through the recent literature, um, there's been this interest in republicanism, right? This is, what is this ism? What is this republicanism that we had at the time? And I think that people miss what republicanism actually is. John Tyler was a Republican with a lowercase r. So was George Washington, and so was Thomas Jefferson. They were all Republicans. In fact, um, if you read Michael Holt's History of the Whig Party, he makes a compelling case that all of these Whigs were in fact Jeffersonians in one way or another, including John Tyler. John Tyler was more Jeffersonian than any of them. He was a Republican. Republicanism was not some type of egalitarian nonsense. And I, and I know Kamegna says, well, look, I don't like the egalitarians. I, don't, I think that they're pie-in-the-sky abolition, all this stuff. It's just wrong. But what is, what, is, what is the basis of republicanism? I mean, you have to go back to uh, the Romans or even the Greeks to understand republicanism. If, if you go by th this type of idea of republicanism that's being pushed here, then even the Romans and the Greeks would not be Republicans, you see. So this is a little bit far-fetched to say that John Tyler killed revolutionary republicanism. His father supped with Thomas Jefferson. There's nobody in, in this period of time, other than Jefferson himself, maybe James Monroe, that was more republican than John Tyler. I think that's a great problem with this piece. From the beginning, He's already gone off the rails in, what, in, in not really understanding what this means. And when you say inauguration, inaugurated a generation of slaveholder imperialism, well, first of all, this is basically taking the slave power thesis, the slave power theory that was hammered into people in the 1850s. It's a, there's a new book out by Michael Karp, uh, say new books, a couple years old, that um, is, is uh, heavily invested in this slave power thesis. This is what the neoconservatives like to push around too. It's the idea that somehow all these people had this conspiracy. The slave owners had a conspiracy to expand the power of the general government and uh, also um, expand the borders of the United States, the boundaries of the United States, in order to perpetuate the institution of slavery. Now, there were certainly people that wanted to do that, but even saying John C. Calhoun was that way misses the things that John C. Calhoun said against expansion and that were pro-Republican. Now, I know that uh, what, what is often said about this, and even, even Comegna says it, he calls it Herrenvolk democracy, but even the individual that he says is a great guy in this particular piece, William Dorr, would have been guilty of somehow practicing a bit of Herrenvolk democracy, right? Because Dorr was the very elite of Northern society. So why is one group that's a slave owner, essentially slavery was a labor system. Uh, it was there, and you could, you could argue whether it was paternalistic or capitalistic. Either way, they're trying to extract the greatest value from the labor of the individuals that are producing. It's a labor system. So why is it that, and, and you can make a case that the South was much more Republican than even the North. Uh, and particularly when you use a very Roman interpretation of the term, 
This is Emmy Bradford's uh, position. Um, so, where William Dore, I mean, he's a man of the of a very comes from a very wealthy family. Uh, you could say that he was more of a demagogue than anything than anything else, more than John Tyler. Uh, so this slaveholder imperialism is just, it's silly. First of all, it's silly. Uh, and you're buying into the slave power thesis, which is just incorrect. Um, particularly since when you look at expansion in the Mexican War, uh, Calhoun was against it. He was against the All of Mexico movement. And of course, there were slave owners who were for it. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to deny there weren't slaveholders looking to push to acquire Cuba or Nicaragua. Or Nicaragua. Of course, that happened. Uh, but I think generally... Uh, this idea of slave power um, is overblown. Okay, Now, in the p- pursuit of base political self-interest, this is Comegna continuing, Tyler crushed so much of what Amer- made America special that we might say the election of 1840 was when American exceptionalism faded into the realm of pure myth. Tyler crushed this? What made America special? Uh, the election of 1840 was when American exceptionalism faded into the realm of pure myth. Uh, you've bought into American exceptionalism? Uh, okay. I mean, again, you're looking at everything from a purely uh, presentist attitude. Uh, and America, look, <laughs> the fundamental structure of America, we had a conservative War for Independence. Not a revolution. This was not revolutionary republicanism. I, I mean, I, I just can't get it where, where people have bought in to the idea that somehow the Tom Paines of the world were driving anything. George Washington and John Rutledge and John Dickinson were driving things. These people were not radical revolutionaries. They were conservatives. We had a conservative war for independence. So, Comegna continues, In our account of Tyler's years, we could run through the train of legislation he signed. But truth be told, Tyler's record here is not so nearly objectionable as most other presidents. In fact, he's most widely known for his vetoes. This is true. John Tyler was no modern president. He was a firm states' rights Jeffersonian, a strict proponent of laissez-faire and small government. And you won't find his follies in the usual places. Rather, just his accidency ascended to the presidency under novel, novel circumstances to find Tyler's greatest faults we will have to investigate two truly unique situations which define his administration and sealed its fate. And so these two truly unique situations, I mean, look, this is, this is getting down to the bottom of the barrel. Okay? Without John Tyler, this is again where, he, where Comegna goes off the rails. Without John Tyler, it is entirely possible that Rhode Island's short-lived civil war, the Door War, would have been resolved in favor of the revolutionary radicals. Their example would certainly have spread to other states, and no one can really say how different the world may have been. This is entirely false. We can't say that for certainty. This would have spread to other states. It might have. Now, of course, he's looking at New York because Dorr spent time in New York. And, of course, he's interested in New York politics in this particular period of time. He's thinking, well, this could have spread. This is going to spread to New York. I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think it would have spread to New York at all. I think it would have stopped in Rhode Island and not gotten any further. And... I'm not so certain it would have succeeded in Rhode Island, excuse me, because John Tyler didn't really do much to stop it. And even Comegna admits that, right? 
So he has to find scraping the bottom of the barrel here. The other thing, without John Tyler, the United States may have well both acquired greater amounts of free territory and avoided becoming a militarized empire. But desperate for re-election, Tyler made concessions to Great Britain and bullied Mexico. He extinguished the Revolutionary Republic and erected a slaveholder's empire in his place. Again, just completely false. Texas is what he's talking about here. And Texas was going to come in the Union. People wanted Texas. Even people in the North wanted Texas. In fact, James K. Polk was elected. One of his campaign slogans was Texas. And so it was going to happen. Texas was going to happen. It was inevitable. The American public wanted Texas. You see, so this was not John Tyler... So it's not John Tyler at all. This is, the, this is a push from the bottom up to acquire Texas. Um, and again, this position that they would have acquired greater free territory. Look, John Tyler didn't negotiate the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. That was Daniel Webster. Um, and that was probably a pretty good deal. <laughs> uh, more free territory? What, into Canada? I doubt it. I doubt it. Look... I mean, the United States in the Polk administration, we're, we're going to go 54, 40, or 5. We're going to take all of Oregon. The British would have none of it. So that was just a few years later. I highly doubt the United States could have peeled away more of Canadian territory from the British. He continues, The old canard that the Whigs chose Tyler as Harrison's running mate simply because Tyler, too, made a nice rhyme with Tippecanoe is flat out wrong. Well, that's true. Tyler was a scion of an ancient and supposedly respectable family. Not supposedly, it was a respectable family. A natural choice for the Whig Party as it was constructed, then or then constituted, excuse me. Um, he was part of a very ancient, respectable family from Virginia. I mean, not, not supposedly. Uh, the Whigs technically did not exist until 1836, and by 1840 there was still an odd and slightly uncomfortable uh, conglomeration of anti-Jackson men. They contain nationalist protectionists like Daniel Webster and John Quincy Adams from New England and Henry Clay from the West, but the Whig Party was also home to states' rights free traders like South Carolina's John C. Calhoun never claimed to be a Whig. I think to say he was a Whig is to misinterpret his history. John C. Calhoun never said he was a Whig. Ever. And his devout follower from Virginia, John Tyler. Uh, John Tyler was not John C. Calhoun's follower. <laughs> John C. John Tyler... Uh, was more of a purist than John C. Calhoun. In fact, the old Republicans, the tradition where John Tyler comes from, didn't trust John C. Calhoun. They didn't trust him at all. Tyler was not a Calhounite. Tyler was Tyler. This is a guy that uh, was the lone, <laughs> the lone voice in the Senate uh, against the force bill. Right? So John Tyler, and of course Calhoun was out of the Senate, but John Tyler was um, was a, a Jeffersonian to the core. Uh, Tyler was once a Jacksonian Democrat, but he supported the South Carolina in the nullification crisis and further broke with Jackson over his handy and management of national finances. Tyler was a lawyer. He brought sectional balance to the ticket. Harrison was from Ohio, and he had vast experience as a state legislature, a United States senator, governor of Virginia, a delegate to the, at the state constitutional convention. 
He had been a candidate for the vice presidency in 1836. Yes, he had some decidedly unwiggish views on issues like the National Bank or protective tariffs, but he could always refer audiences to his voting record, his speeches, and his consistent philosophy of Jeffersonian republicanism. Now, um, this is a question of Whigism. What is the Whigism or Whiggery? Yeah, you had Henry Clay, who was a national Republican. Again, I would I would suggest, and I, when you go to his notes, he doesn't even bring up Michael Holt and uh, the his history of the Whig Party. I, I mean, I would assume that Comegna's read it, but he doesn't bring it up. He uses Daniel Walker Howe's "What God hath What hath God wrought the Transformation of America," which is a decent book, um, but Howe's okay. But I would, I would rely on Holt. Holt is more reliable here than, than uh, Howe. Our, from our own age, a massive, incredibly intrusive government which is constantly waging war across the planet, we might be inclined to look back on a Jeffersonian like Tyler with a measure of nostalgia and appreciation. Yet we must remember that he stumbled in the presidency during an era when Southern intellectual and political culture was racing toward whatever justifications and explanations for slavery they might be able to grasp. Year by year, more politicians, editors, writers, public speakers, and average Southerners paid lip service to useful Jeffersonian principles while expressly denying foundational ideas of the system, like universal equal rights. Um, I don't think Jefferson even supported that. I mean, again, this is, I don't see where Comegna is getting this stuff from. Jefferson didn't even believe in universal equal rights. <laughs> uh, this is just silly. It's silly. This is, I mean, you might as well just say, Hail Lincoln. Because this is exactly what you're doing. You're reading the, the war in reverse. And you're reading Jefferson and Jefferson's positions out of context. Tyler was a key figure connecting the Jeffersonian generation from the early republic to the Calhounite pro-slavery generation of the Jacksonian era and his direct descendants in the Confederacy. Um, I, I don't think that Comegna understands Calhoun. I'll just say that. I really don't think Comegna understands Calhoun. It's not that Calhoun wasn't pro-slavery, because he was. But why was he pro-slavery? And um, that said, you did have people that started bristling at Jefferson. In fact, um, if you read Albert Taylor Bledsoe and you read his his uh, philosophical work, um, he's very critical of Jefferson. Many people were for that one line because of the way they said it was taken out of context that Jefferson was actually wrong. All men are created equal. He said that it was wrong. But we know that Jefferson meant that to mean equality under the law. And, of course, citizens with equality under the law. We know that's what that meant. Again, I've got a class on this, the Declaration of Independence. Excuse me. So you might want to get that one. Um, and he stumbled into the presidency because the president died. But, um, you know, the idea was to put together a coalition of Southern... Look, the Whig Party started in South Carolina when uh, they were running around calling Andrew Jackson King Andrew. And the, the the supporters of Jackson were the Tories. This is where the Whig Party starts. And there was two elections where South Carolina actually just nominated their own guy. Um, so that's where the Whig Party begins. So Tyler was actually the core of the party. It was opposition to strong central authority and, more importantly, out-of-control executive government. Tyler and many, other per many others perverted Jeffersonian liberalism from an ideology of universal liberation into a mangled set of excuses for some of the world's worst tyrants. I, I, wh where, did, where did this come from? 
I mean, this is this is the real problem. People that look at, my gosh, uh, where are these people reading? Where did Jefferson say that it was a, he, he fostered a, a belief in universal liberation? <laughs> where did Jefferson say that? As a matter of fact, I I don't think you can find anything that Jefferson said we needed universal liberation. Not one time did Jefferson ever advocate that position. So there are so many problems with with this piece from the beginning. From the beginning. We haven't even gotten to the meat of the piece yet. And I'm just going to go into that uh, in a little bit of detail. We haven't even gotten there yet, and we're already just completely off the rails with this. So, again, I like Kamegna. I think he's he's a good guy, but he's completely wrong about this. Perverted Jeffersonian liberalism. For the Whigs, the election of 1840 was a runaway success. They took the White House and the Congress, and their party finally appeared ready to roll back the age of Jackson. Angry as he was at Harrison, beat him out of the nomination. Henry Clay giddily anticipated repealing Van Buren's independent treasury, enacting a new national bank, a stream of internal improvement projects, and steadily ratcheting up tariffs. Bacteria, though, does not care about human plans. After delivering the longest inaugural speech in President Treasury, Harrison contracted enteric fever and pneumonia, then died a month later. No one's quite sure what to do. The Constitution says the powers and duties of the president shall devolve to the vice president. But did this also mean the office itself? Was he merely an acting or provisional president? Whatever the actual meaning of the text, Tyler seized the moment and assumed the office, establishing the model for presidential succession. To skeptics like former President Adams, Tyler was entirely unequal to the task. Who cares what John Quincy Adams said? I mean, I'll just say that. John Quincy Adams is, uh, in my mind, uh, one of the least credible people as president or even as a constitutional scholar to rely upon. Now, as a as a individual who's against foreign adventurism, fine. That's about it with John Quincy Adams. And in fact, I'll just give you something I'll just say about everybody liked James Byard. Okay. Everybody liked James Byard. Um and James Byard got along with everybody. Now this is James Byard the Elder, the the man who represented the United States, one of the representatives of the United States in the Treaty of Ghent. John Quincy Adams could not, could not get along with James Byard. <laughs> okay? So this is, he was a miserable human being, a lot like his father, who I'm not a big fan of either. Uh, and this is, I think that Comegna has just, just absorbed too much of this kind of stuff to be impartial with these things. Um... Fit or unfit, respectable or despicable, Tyler was president as of April 4th, 1841. Um, and so he goes through everything which happened here and and um, about his vetoes of the bank and all that. But he gets into this idea of Rhode Island. Now, look, Comegna, again, loves Thomas Wilson Dorr. I, I, I mean, he's he's fully invested in, in, in praising Dorr. Um, and this Door War, which is Door Rebellion, right, where you had, and I'm going to, this is what I'll say about this. Door, if you don't know the story, Door, the, the, the Rhode Island Constitution was not a written document. Uh, it was the old charter, old colonial charter, uh, and they never wrote a constitution. So they were still operating under this colonial charter. It had an order to vote. You had to uh, own land, and there were fewer people in Rhode Island that owned land by uh, this period of time, the 1840s, and so there was a, a push for a new constitution. Uh, Dorr, of course, went through uh, the Rhode Island legislature, and he could get nowhere. So then he called, he called himself, um, 
a he, he self-called a constitutional convention, essentially. He turned to the Rhode Island Suffrage Association for a People's Convention, which met in October. From December 27 to 29, Rhode Island voters voted for the People's Constitution, 13,944 in favor, with only 52 opposed. This included a majority of even the landholder population, 4960 out of 8,000. Even though virtually everyone who opposed the People's Charter refused to recognize the convention's legitimacy with their ballots, the People's Charter did indeed receive majority support from the majority of the state's voters, however construed. Now, this is an important point. You see, and I'll go back to, to Sam Adams. When Shea's Rebellion took place, and Sam Adams, of course, was still around at this time, and the process goes, Sam Adams thought that all those people should be hung. And you might say, well, this is Sam Adams. How could he believe that? Because, see, there's a difference. Sam Adams said, look, we have a legally constituted government now in Massachusetts. People vote for it. And so because they vote for it, it's legitimate. And this is just, it's, it's rebellion. In 1776, we couldn't vote for our government outside of the one we had in Massachusetts. So these people were governing us without our consent because we didn't have, leg- we didn't have people in that, in that parliament. But now we do. We control it. So in this particular case, if Dorr really wanted reform, he had to go through the legislature. It was the legally constituted government of Rhode Island. It was the legitimate government of Rhode Island. And if the legislature did not call the convention, it was an illegitimate convention. And I don't care if the people voted for it or not. It was illegitimate. So Tyler's position had to be decided with the state of Rhode Island. (laughs) What else is he supposed to do? The governor of the state was not asking um, Tyler to send in the troops. He sent in, well, what's going on here? Since people have to take a look, see what's going on. Decided in restraint, we're not going to send anybody in there because we weren't asked. Right? The Constitution is very clear on this. So what is what is John Tyler supposed to do? Send in the troops and say we're going to support these rebels against the legally constituted government of the state of Rhode Island? I mean, what do you want? Uh, this is completely preposterous. And again, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel hill to figure something out about, you know, to, to attack John Tyler for. Um... So I, I think that, and of course, he's going to bash Abel Upshur, who frankly is one of the greatest constitutional scholars in the antebellum period. Um, he's going to he's going to bash Upshur, and Upshur did write something, you know, saying we want to get Texas. They they did bring up um, uh, that this was, you know, we needed more slave states. There was that position, and why? Because they were afraid that the addition of more northern states, more free territory, would upset the balance of power in the government, and of course, the south, as the agrarian section would be swallowed up. It's the same thing the north was afraid about in the early 19th century when the south was controlling the government all the time. It's all about power, right? Um, now, uh, Upshur said that Dorism, he uses this, Dorism shows starkly that the very madness of democracy, and a fine example of the major- majority principle, yeah, I mean, uh, they weren't for universal democracy. This was not representative democracy. It was universal democracy. This is not what the founding... Look, that's very in li- very much in line with the founding generation. They were against that too. So, again, Comegna doesn't really understand the founding period. That's, that's all I'll say about this. And, of course, then he brings up Texas and how that was brought in the Union, and this he says this is illegal. Uh, Tyler was following the same procedure that brought Louisiana into the Union. I, I don't think that you can... Criticize John Tyler for this position if you're not going to criticize Jefferson, which I'm sure Comegna would. Uh, but 
the fact is that uh, through a joint resolution of Congress, Texas was annexed. Uh, Todd originally tried a treaty. It didn't work. It was rejected in the Senate. And uh, so then when it became clear that Texas was coming in the Union one way or another, the Congress got behind it and it passes. So we have a joint resolution of Congress against Texas and the Union. Um, and of course, Texas was an independent republic. So uh, it says that the Congress may admit new states. It, does it have to be through a treaty or not? It could just Congress can admit new states. And they did through a joint resolution. Perfectly constitutional. <laughs> Perfectly constitutional. Okay. Congress committed whatever state it wants. Commit the state of Canada, the state of Mexico, the state of Ireland. If it wanted to be part of the United States, it could admit the state of Ireland. Ireland petitions to become a state. Hey, you're a state. If it was independent to do so, wants to be part of the United States, why not? It's part of the United States. So this is a this is a silly position. But um, the problem, the main problem I have with this Comegna piece is that he really doesn't understand the the founding, the early republic, republicanism. It's too saturated with presentism, and uh, so it has all the problems of left-leaning libertarianism, I, I think, is, is the issue. Even though I think Comegna is much more moderate on those things than other people, um, but just by reading some of the things he's written. So um, read it. It's, it's an interesting piece. I think his position, we're going to take apart the presidents. That's a great thing. Let's take apart the presidents. Let's do it, uh, because a lot of presidents deserve scorn. Uh, but you know, don't scrape the bottom of the barrel to attack someone just to find something to attack them about. And I, I think that's what was going on here with this Tyler piece. Tyler was not the worst president in American history, by far was not the worst president. And to say that is uh, truly, truly a grand statement of uh, lunacy. Um, so, uh, I mean, Woodrow Wilson, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, we can go down the list of presidents that did a much worse job than John Tyler, uh, and were so much, uh, so much more destructive than the Tyler administration ever was when it came to American government. All right, I'll see you next time on the Brian McClain.